I am very happy to be joined by Greg Grozicki. Greg, how are you doing today? Doing well, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. Um, would you mind giving us a little bit of background on your educational and professional work, please? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So <clears throat> I was a uh, cross-country runner in college and really studied exercise science because I kind of wanted to learn more about myself, how to make myself go faster. Um, got to my senior year and realized didn't really have a great plan or what I wanted to do with my life. So ended up taking a really fantastic opportunity to study exercise science and its relation to aging at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem. Um, and it was there that I really found my a passion for taking my experience and skill set as an athlete, having been a collegiate athlete and, and competed at the NCAA level, and using it and using that knowledge to improve the health and function of older adults and, and being able to take my, this is what we did in the gym, this is what we did in training, and use it as a way to help an older adult do something like go down and play with their kids or play 18 holes of golf, for instance. Um, when I graduated from Wake Forest, I was fortunate to be accepted into the uh, human bioenergetics uh, PhD program at Ball State University, where I studied under the tutelage of Scott Traffy. And he's world-renowned in basically the research on aging skeletal muscle. And that's kind of how, how we connected your interest in some of the stuff that I did when I was there. Um, we know that as you get older, you lose muscle mass and size and, and function and so on. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that a lot more in the podcast today. But my particular research focused on age-related changes at the cellular level. So what's going on in individual muscle fibers, which are cells, that contribute to age-related reductions in muscle size, strength, and power, and how that affects physical function and quality of life in people as they get older. And then furthermore, bringing in that exercise and even somewhat of a dietary component. How can we, as we get older, the inevitability of getting older, right? How can we best prevent uh, those age-related changes and live you know, the, the healthiest and happiest lives that we can? And so to do that, we would take muscle biopsies from older adults, from a wide range across the physical activity spectrum, from those who were sedentary to those who were world-class athletes. And we'd study their muscle cells uh, under a microscope, just as you would for a whole muscle. We'd measure how big it was. We'd look at how quickly it can contract, how much strength and power uh, it can produce. And we'd compare them. Uh, we'd subject them to different so sorts of interventions like disuse um, and then different types of physical activity and looked at and tried to figure out what is the best way to preserve the uh, integrity and, and size and strength of, of those aging muscle fibers. So that's what I did uh, for my, for my PhD work and, and the paper you read about aging muscle fibers. Um, a lot of that was, was building off work I did during my doctoral studies. I went on for a postdoc in, uh, in Boston after that, where I worked in the human nutrition research center on aging at Tufts university. Um, it was actually at the HNRCA at Tufts that the term sarcopenia was born, which is actually Greek. Sark meaning flesh and penia meaning poverty. So this word sarcopenia really describes the age-related poverty or loss of, of flesh, loss of skeletal muscle mass as we get older. And there we uh, tried to identify really diagnostic cut points. We know sarcopenia happens as we get older, but unlike high blood pressure, which we can say is something like 
you know, 130 over 80. How exactly do we objectively define sarcopenia uh, clinically, and how, and how can we how can we define that? And so that's what I did for my postdoctoral work. That's excellent. I'm looking forward to digging into this a bit more, Greg. And as you touched on, I first came across your work after reading a research paper you were the lead author on labeled single muscle fiber contractile function with aging, which was published in the Journal of Physiology. The paper goes into great detail on the age-related changes to both slow and fast-twitch muscle fibers, digging into what you found and providing listeners with information they can use to improve their physical function is what I'd like to focus on. Something very interesting from the paper were the stats about how we don't lose muscle mass, muscle strength, and muscle power at the same time. I think, obviously, everybody's aware of there is a physical function decline with age. But the fact that it's not uniform is something that I find very fascinating and maybe really interesting to listeners who are trying to maintain both longevity for everyday life, but we also have golf fanatics listening to this. So um, can you go into how the decline in muscle mass, muscle strength, and muscle power is different and maybe I guess, just what these, um, how these terms are different. Like what is the difference between mass, strength, and power, maybe how they're related and how the declines differ? Yeah, no, sure. I'd be happy to. And and thanks so much for checking out that paper. I need to give um, kudos to my colleague, Chris Sundberg at Marquette, who was integral in writing that paper. He was a senior author um, and we worked on it night and day for about a year. And also his student, Carlos Zepeda, who was phenomenal team player um and then all the previous body of work that that we relied on for that so so thank you for finding that um but i need to to thank them as well so but yeah to to dive a little bit more into the specifics i think as a whole we generally think okay if muscle is getting bigger it's getting stronger and and for the most part that's right but not necessarily and if it's getting smaller it's getting weaker and and again that's probably right but but they're not necessarily linearly related. And, and so that's kind of what you're getting at with that question. We know as we get older, we lose muscle mass. And that loss of muscle mass differs in different individuals. But on average, we say that that occurs at a rate of about 0.5 to 1% per year of life, beginning anywhere between 30 to 40 years of age. And so Again, if you think about that, that's about 5 to 10% per decade of muscle mass that we're losing. And this particularly refers to muscle mass in the, in, the, in the quadriceps. And we study this in the context of aging skeletal muscle, one, because it's easier to study, but two, because we know it's extremely important for physical function, our ability to stand up and walk around and move and play a round of golf. And so again, we lose the size of our quadriceps at a rate of about 0.5 to 1% per year. And that's just, that's just size, right? You measure that a number of different ways, uh, CT scan or MRI being the preferred way to do so. Occurring with that loss of muscle size, as you said, is a reduction in strength and power. And so let's start out by defining what are strength and power. And we talk about strength, we're looking at the amount of force that that muscle can generate. And so 
from a, an applied sports perspective, the easiest way to measure muscle force would be how much can that muscle pick up or, or how much can that individual lift in terms of weight? The amount of weight someone could lift completely through the entire range of motion just one time or what we'd call our one repetition maximum. And that's, that's strength, that's force. And we know that the loss of muscle mass contributes to a reduction in muscle force or strength. But what we actually see when we measure force or strength in older adults is that strength deteriorates at a rate that's greater than what we see in mass. And that's anywhere from 1% to 2% per year. So now we're losing 10 to 20% per decade. And so that's troublesome because we know that, yeah, the age-related loss of mass is probably contributing to that, but there's something else going on. And then perhaps the most functionally relevant variable, and by this I mean if we're looking at muscle size and muscle strength and muscle power, is muscle power. And that's force times velocity or force times distance divided by time. And I say functionally relevant. I mean, if we're thinking about an older adult, the ability to stop themselves from having a fall, they could have a big muscle, they could have a strong muscle, but if that muscle can't contract rapidly, then it's not going to be able to stop from a fall or, or catch ourselves if we're having a fall. In the context of golf, right, you could have a really big muscle, you could have a really strong muscle, but if we can't swing that club explosively and generate power, then we're not going to hit that ball very far, right? And so when we say functionally relevant, we can talk about activities of daily living, but we can also talk about from a sports perspective, right? Um, kind of in a different context, you can think about alignment, playing football, right? He can be big and strong, but if he can't explode off that line fast, then his quarterback's going to get hit. And so we really are interested in muscle power because this seems to be a critical determinant of physical function from both the health perspective, but also a per performance perspective. And what we see if we look at the age-related deterioration of power is that it exceeds the loss of mass or strength. And it's being lost at a rate of maybe 3 to 4% per year. And then we're getting up 30 to 40% per decade. And so we have this cascade where we're losing mass or losing strength even more. And then even most precipitously, we're losing power. And so this sets up a conundrum. Well, we know reductions in size are contributing to the loss, loss of function, and we're going to call that strength or power. But why is that? And that tells us that there's something more inside the muscle that's probably going on. Um, and there could be a number of different factors that are contributing to this greater loss of function than size, right? One of them that's outside the muscle would be the body's ability to communicate to that muscle to contract. And that would be based on the, the nervous system, the, the ability of the nervous system to excite the skeletal muscle fibers and, and tell them to contract. And when we look at age-related studies about neural innervation of skeletal muscle, there's data showing that, yeah, it might go down, but there's other data showing that, that maybe not so much. And so what we can conclude is while neural innervation of the, of the muscle may contribute in part, it certainly doesn't explain that entire delta between size and function or strength and power. So then we got to look inside the muscle and there's a number of different, and I'm going to use a term, physiological phenomenon or changes with aging that contribute to that reduction. And we call this muscle quality. 
And that's the difference between size and, and strength or power. So there's a number of different factors there. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good summary. And I'm sure one that people are very interested in. That brings us on to how we have different muscle fibers. So, so far, we've just talked about how uh, we lose muscle mass and that there's also a change in muscle strength and muscle power, which isn't uniform. What we haven't talked about is potential reasons in the muscle why this is the case. And something I'd like to, to dig into is how we have slow and fast twitch for sake of giving it a broad, easy to understand term, slow and fast twitch muscle fibers in each muscle, how these are affected differently by aging and what that means for what we just talked about in terms of decline for the different uh, factors of function. Yeah, no, that's a perfect question. And, and it really segues nicely into what I was getting at there is that another possible mechanism explaining this deterioration of muscle quality are changes in individual muscle fibers, right? And so when we talk about muscle fibers, we're talking about cells. These can be pretty long. They're long cylindrical structures. And if you hold it up with a tweezer, you, it's one of the few cells in the human body that you can actually see with the naked eye. It kind of looks about like a human hair. They're, and they come in, in all different lengths, but it's one of the rare cells that you can actually see. And this is really the cellular basis for muscle contraction. So when we contract a muscle, if we do a biceps curl, for example, our muscle fibers in the biceps are all shortening all at once to produce the force that, that we're generating when we do that biceps curl. And so these muscle fibers, again, they make up the muscle and, and they're all working together, ideally, to produce muscle force or power. Um, and, and uh, changes in these individual muscle fibers are, as we said, one potential mechanism that could be contributing to this deterioration of muscle quality. All right. So let's take a look a little bit more under the hood of, of what is a muscle fiber and what are the different types of muscle fibers, like you said, um, in, in layman's terms and to keep it as simple as we possibly can, there are more or less, um, two two kind of three different muscle fiber types um i'm going to go with three but then we're going to kind of continue explaining it in two and I'll, and I'll talk about why I, that is i've wrote a blog post on my website explaining the three different ones so there's okay. probably a certain section of listeners are familiar with the three different um classifications so i think that should be okay okay and if not they, they can read that for some extra background info <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. And, and the truth is, uh, one of those muscle fiber types, you really don't find it much in healthy humans. Um, but then to make it more complex, you do have muscle fibers that are like hybrids. So mm -hmm. it gets, yeah, it gets pretty, pretty, uh, nitty gritty, but yeah, so we have slow and we have fast muscle fibers. And, and the easiest way to think about this is if you look at a marathon runner and a power lifter. And this is a perfect analogy for these slow and fast muscle fibers. So the slow muscle fibers, these are our type one muscle fibers. These are our marathon muscle fibers. They use an energy system that can go all day. Uh, these muscle fibers can contract repeatedly. They're super resistant to fatigue. Um, they're generally going to be a little smaller 
uh, than these fast muscle fibers. And likewise, they're not going to generate as much strength. And most importantly, as the name implies, they're slow. So they don't contract very quickly. So why do we have these muscle fibers? Well, because they're essential. The slow muscle fiber do things like make up our heart, right? The heart doesn't necessarily need to contract very quickly, but if it fatigues, we die. And so slow muscle fibers are very important, right? They also make up uh, what we call the postural muscles, muscles that we're always using, we're always activating. We're sitting here, we're engaging a lot of our slow postural type 1 muscle fibers. Um, and so there are these slow muscle fibers. There are also these fast muscle fibers, and these are the, the power lifter of muscle fibers, right? These are bigger, they're stronger, and as the name implies, they contract more rapidly. Um, there are also the kind of super fast muscle fibers that most people have very few of, less than 1%. We see them, ironically, in people who have spinal cord injury and people who go to space or do bed rest without doing anything <laughs> for a long period of time. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. But, but uh, we also see them a lot in the animal kingdom. If you look at like comparative physiology, so in like cheetahs and cats, um, but they're not super abundant in healthy humans. So that's kind of interesting. So, but again, going back to our slow and fast muscle fibers, Every muscle in the human body is going to be made up of different proportions of these slow and fast muscle fibers. And a lot of that, whether a muscle is mostly slow or mostly fast or a combination therein, is dependent on how much that muscle is used. So a muscle like the heart, um, muscles like the diaphragm, muscles like postural muscles like the soleus, which is our lower calf muscle. Muscles that are used almost all the time, as you would expect, are going to be mostly slow-twitch muscle fibers. And that's great because it means that those muscle fibers contract. They're not going to fatigue. They don't need to contract really rapidly, um, but they can contract. Meanwhile, some other muscles, um, muscles like our vastus lateralis and the quadriceps is one we study a lot. It tends to be more mixed, a mix of, of uh, slow and fast-twitch muscle fibers. And that's somewhat dependent on use. Um, but we also know that it's somewhat dependent on our genes. Um, there's a really, really neat uh, kind of case study done by my colleagues, Andy Galpin and Jimmy Bagley, out in California, where they studied uh, it was middle age or older uh, twins. They were totally discordant for physical activity. Uh, one of them had been doing marathons and triathlons all his life, and then the other had been totally sedentary. He was like a truck driver. They did a biopsy on these individuals, and what they found is that the guy who had been doing all these endurance-type activities, he had over 90% slow-twitch muscle fibers in oh. his vastus lateralis, which is unheard of. When you look at even the data in the uh, very elite marathon runners, it was coming from the Ball State Human Performance Lab, guys like Frank Shorter and Steve Prefontaine, guys winning gold medals, they were like 80%. So this guy was 90%. Meanwhile, his sedentary twin was more than 50% type 2 muscle fibers. And so it does go to show that, yeah, we know genetic plays a role, but lifestyle seems to maybe be the primary determinant of our muscle fiber type. And we know, um, you know, I think kind of in the context of this podcast, we're talking about golf and we're talking a little bit about aging, that muscle fiber type is also impacted by aging. Um, as we get older, 
uh, there's a couple of changes with the muscle fibers. First, they go away. We lose muscle fibers. There's some, and and there's no great way to study this in humans, but there was a some, uh, some pioneering work by a, a physiologist named Jan Lexell that uh, he had access to to some cadavers uh, of, of different ages and had died in, in car accidents tragically, and he was able to study the number of muscle fibers in their quadriceps. Um, across the lifespan from, from 20 to 80 years of age. And what he showed is that going from 20 to 80, almost half those muscle fibers uh, seem to go away, that we lose about half of them. So that's one of the changes is that is that we our muscle fiber number is reduced by half. And so you can think about the implications that has for the whole muscle, right? Um, but then we also wonder, okay, if we're losing muscle fibers, are we losing more slow? Or are we losing more fast switch muscle fibers? Because that's going to profoundly impact the function of that muscle, right? We can also have changes in muscle fiber type. What we see in older adults generally is uh, uh, fewer fast twitch muscle fibers, much fewer fast twitch muscle fibers. So the muscle is going to become more slow twitch. And and that is going to have a severe impact on on strength and power um but but what we see mostly is a reduction in size of these fast twitch muscle fibers as well and and this is something we talked a lot about in the paper so i think as we get older what we really need to target are these fast twitch muscle fibers specifically because we're losing them in number and and we're also having a, a profound reduction in their size and so finding interventions to to preserve fast twitch muscle fiber number as well as size seems to maybe be the golden ticket and it's finding ways to do that. Yeah, that's something I wanted to kind of really, I think, make clear. There was a, a line in the paper, I, I should have written it down, but it was essentially um, that it seemed like people could maintain the number and size of their slow twitch fibers reasonably well all throughout life but there was a significant reduction in the number and size of fast twitch fibers and also that even lifelong aerobic or cardiovascular based training was not sufficient to keep these these fibers uh, number and size and function yeah 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 and so there was some some great work um from Jeffrey Power up in Canada and, and a couple other physiologists up there that looked at motor unit and, and as a surrogate of that kind of muscle fiber number in lifelong endurance athletes. And, and sure enough, they showed that it seems that compared to sedentary controls, they were able to preserve the number of muscle fibers they had, or at least evidence of that. So, so that was neat. And then some of my work in, in uh, my dissertation showed that once again, as you said, lifelong aerobic exercisers that seem to do well at preserving the size and the function of their type 1 muscle fibers. And a matter of fact, what we actually see might be an increase in size and function of the type 1 muscle fibers with lifelong endurance exercise, whereby we're seeing larger, stronger, faster, more powerful type 1 fibers in 70-year-old athletes than 20-year-old athletes. So that's kind of cool. But what we think actually is going on there is that those type one, the slow twitch fibers are having to compensate for what's going on in, in these fast twitch fibers, where we know 
it seems number isn't being preserved and the size and function is deteriorating independent regardless of the fact that they're doing lifelong aerobic exercise and so you may say well hold on they're doing lifelong aerobic exercise and well yes but we know that aerobic exercise is activating the type 2 fibers so it's not just that they're not being active um is it maybe as powerful as using something like resistance exercise well probably not because that's a vastly different stimulus and the truth is all of this research till now has been mostly cross-sectional comparisons. So where by that, I mean, we've taken people who have done aerobic exercise for 70 years and those who haven't and compared them. Um, it's much, much more challenging to find people who have done resistance exercise for 70 years. There's just not as many of them out there, but that's, I think there will be though. I think it's be. getting so, so much more common now. There will be. And that's where the field needs to go. Um, and furthermore, I think we can ask the question, like, yeah, the lifelong resistance exercise is great, right? But what if we didn't do resistance exercise when we were 20 and we're 40 or 50, right? Because there's a lot of people who are 40 or 50 years old, middle age, or, or, or maybe even we're older, right? What happens if we do resistance exercise later in life? Um, and so I think that's another very important question that, that needs to be asked and answered. We know as we get older, and I'm, by this I'm saying 60 to 65 years of age, there does seem to be a reduced adaptive capacity of physiology, and, and particularly in skeletal muscle. And, and we call this in, in the skeletal muscle field anabolic resistance, that our muscle doesn't seem to grow as well as it did when we were 20 or 30. But that doesn't mean it doesn't grow. The aging muscle, it could be 70, it could be 80, it could be 90 years old. You could do exercise in a 90-year-old muscle, and it can still very much get bigger and stronger and faster and more powerful. So at no point is, is everything lost. Um, but we do know that that ability to adapt does go down as we get older. And so that really emphasizes the importance of taking, um, you know, kind of prophylactic measures, if you will, and, and beginning exercise earlier in life, if we can, and, and even maybe in middle life. And it's, it's certainly possible that we could start doing resistance exercise when we're 20 or start doing it when we're 50, and we're going to have similar outcomes when we're 70 or 80 in terms of our muscle size and strength. We don't do know. You have any, do you have any figures, Greg, on the anabolic resistance? For example, if somebody is 63 years old and they start resistance training, is it a case of like it's five percent harder to gain to gain muscle and strength, or is it fifty percent harder? Is there any ranges you have there? Because I think that's something that's interesting. Like if you tell a sixty-three-year-old just the line, "Hey, it, there's uh, this thing called anabolic resistance, so it's harder to gain muscle and strength when you're sixty-three." Well, how much am I completely wasting my time, or is it just as a little bit? I think we kind of know the answer from experience. But yeah. I'd be interested what um what research says. Yeah. So by no means is it a complete waste of time, and I think that's an excellent question. But it's very difficult to answer and muddled by what I'm going to refer to as response heterogeneity, meaning I weigh 150 pounds, and I could do resistance training for the next three years, and I may weigh 153 pounds by the end. 
I'm not experiencing anabolic, well, maybe I am, but not age-related anabolic resistance, right? People respond differently to different stimuli. Um, and so saying, putting a figure or a number on, well, how much is adaptive capacity down with aging becomes very challenging to do because it's going to be different in different people. Um, but at never is there going to be a point where, well, not never, but it's unlikely that someone's not going to respond at all. And, and I think, um, you know, again, with that, that heterogeneity and responsiveness, it also is going to be somewhat determined by the, the stimulus that people are using, right? So if we're trying one particular exercise regime and we're not seeing great response to it, then maybe it's time to try something else. And um, we also maybe need to look at diet and, and how that is impacting anabolic responsiveness. Another thing that's kind of interesting, and a buddy of mine, Kevin Mirak in the University of Arkansas, does a lot of this research, is he kind of looks at, uh, and, and as well as Jimmy Bagley at San Francisco State, they, they're both kind of interested in uh, myonuclear memory. So basically the ability of the muscle to adapt and how that's regulated by the nuclei of skeletal muscle fibers. And, and kind of as a fun fact, um, skeletal muscle or muscle cells are, are unique in that they have multiple nuclei or multinucleated. And we kind of think of the nuclei as the brain. And uh, so when we stress muscle fibers and they need to get bigger and stronger, the nuclei control the addition of new proteins that are going to be necessary for that muscle to produce more force. And, and what we see is uh, what's referred to as like an epigenetic memory. And, and so what I mean by that is that if we have muscle that was trained when it was younger, 20 or 30 or 40 years old, right? A lot of us, you know, maybe we were athletes in college and then, you know, the typical story, you get out, you have a career, you get married, you have, you know, you start a job, you have kids and you stop exercising. Then you, they get out of the house and you start exercising again. The really cool thing is that it seems as though there's benefits doing exercise when we were younger, that the nuclei remember the adaptive traits or what was necessary to build muscle. And so because we were, if you compare someone who's 70 years old, say, and did exercise in their 20s and 30s to someone who didn't, that 70-year-old who had previously participated in exercise is probably going to respond um, better to that training stimulus. So I think that's kind of neat as well. There's two things I wanted to just backtrack on there, Greg, that I think are valuable. One is you said you're 150 pounds now. And if you did resistance training for the next three years, you might weigh, you know, 153 pounds and not gain much muscle mass. What I think we could see far more progress in, though, is your strength and power, which is even more important because from a from a function and performance standpoint, muscle is basically a means to an end. Like muscle doesn't guarantee your performance in any task. It plays a big role. And definitely from like a practitioner's standpoint, as a SNC coach, we can see massive changes in like muscle function and performance without much change in muscle mass. Going into what you were talking about in terms of the nervous system, how well you can coordinate things. So I think that's really important for people. And then the other one is you said that it's very hard to find people who have been resistance training, you know, for multiple, multiple decades and study them. What about people who have been engaging in 
let's say more speed orientated like real speed orientated sports for a long time so i'm thinking of you know maybe master sprinters or something like this um is there any research on on those types of athletes and if so what we see when we examine their muscles yeah yeah two great questions there so we'll start out with the changes in in strength and power that may come independent of changes in size and 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 kind of like you just said there are great benefits to participating in in muscle building or or strength or power focused training that are totally independent of changes in muscle size and as a matter of fact um some of the greatest changes you're going to see with resistance training are going to occur in the first two four eight ten weeks of beginning a resistance training program and you're not really going to see any increase in muscle size until at least two to three months of, of participating in in resistance exercise so you're going to see profound increases in in strength and power and even if you're doing something uh simpler like number of push-ups or the number of pull-ups you can do and a lot of those are going to be as you said um mediated by and changes in, in the nervous system so basically the ability of the nervous system to tell that muscle to contract this is really important for athletes that may not want to get bulkier right because again if we're looking at a sport like golf there's no real benefit to being bigger um, unless can, it allows you create more power un- unless right. the extra muscle mass leads to a gain in power right right and then and and of course that and there might be a point where being bigger would even be maybe disadvantageous as well right so um yeah there are certainly a lot of gains to be made that that can occur independent of any changes in muscle size and you can even design training programs that are focused more on increasing strength and power than just you know adding bulk on um your second question was relating to uh lifelong strength and power athletes kind of are speed athletes like like master sprinters or something like that you know yeah there's not really any great again longitudinal studies but i think the closest we could look at in the literature there would be look at deteriorations in performance time among uh sprinters in um master sprinters in like track and field and swim and once again we kind of see the same thing we're seeing in just the lay population where if we look at, for instance, the 1500 meter swim, which is taking people 20 minutes, maybe, um, maybe a little less, depending on how fast they're swimming it. And I can't give you any raw numbers. The data aren't really super fresh in my head. But I, what I do know is that if we look at people going from 30 to 40 to 60, 70 to 80, the deterioration we're seeing in the 1500 is not going to be as robust as what we'd see if we were to look at something like a sprint event, like the 50 or the 100 meter. And this, these are theoretically people, it's not necessarily the same people, right? But this is theoretically giving you kind of the limits of human performance. And so I do think that really does beg the question. And this isn't just a throw our hands up in the air and say all is lost type thing, but is it possible to even preserve those fast muscle fibers as we get older and i think it probably is but it is a way to preserve them completely or are are we going to just experience reductions in size and strength and power that are just a product of a product of natural aging and and probably we are a little bit 
but and I the think the, the rate is key though you know what I mean it's like it's not just a question of is it black or white or yes or no it's like it can be a really 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 small small decline that you're barely noticing year to year which for a lot of people is okay that's definitely worth it or it's yeah. a case of look this just isn't going to happen once you're x age but you know I, I think we're sort of both on the same page where that's that's not the case because there's I know it's hard um, to give definitive answers when there's limited research. And that's maybe a time when certain case studies are very, very valuable. You know, it's it's almost like when anecdotes become more important um, yeah. to a certain degree. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, there's there's actually a, a, a perfect case study that um, has been a guest on this podcast before. I think you'd love to talk to him. I think I can't remember the exact episode number, but he was before 10, I'm pretty sure, maybe five or six. But um, his name is John Cor. He lives in Ireland. He's a world level master sprinter. And I've known him for probably 15 years. He was the owner of the first gym that I worked in when I started working as a trainer in Ireland. But what's amazing about John is that he's now 53. And when he was in his late teens and early 20s, he was a reasonably good sprinter. Like he was a trained sprinter. And then I think it was in his late 20s, he started taking it way more seriously. And now at 53, he's pretty much exactly as fast as he was when he was in his late teens and early 20s. Yeah. And if, if you watch him training, whether it's in the gym or on the track, there's just no way you'd believe he's 53. Like it's unbelievable. He's running, he's running 200 meters. I'll, I'll post his times on Twitter later. I'll check them, but I'm pretty sure his 200 meter time is like 23 something. Like it's, it's amazingly fast. And like his his vertical jump, his weight training. And like, we're always talking. It's like, John, what are you going to be like when you're 60? What are you going to be like when you're 70? And He's almost like, you know, my, my, uh, the one person I'd love to see, let's, let's do studies on him. <laughs> yeah, no, let's, for sure. That's the type of thing that needs to be done. Right. Cause there are so few people who, who do train like that. And I do think, you know, what you're saying kind of alludes to part of what the root of the matter of the problem might be is how many of us, when we get to be 30 or 40 or 50 are training in such a way that we're targeting that fast explosive speed. Yeah, that was actually, I'm, I'm going to jump to that later, actually, that, that question about what we can do. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of these subjects is, do we see differences between males and females? Yeah, that's a great question. When we're younger, they're not, as a parent, as we might see, as we might, as one might think, as far as absolute gains, so looking at absolute changes in mass and strength, and absolute, I mean, in raw kilograms, we're going to see greater improvements in males than females, but from a relative perspective, so a percent of whatever body mass or a percent of strength, they're generally going to be similar between males and females. Now, as we get older, that may change. And, and what I was specifically previously talking about with that anabolic resistance, it seems to be most pronounced in 
older females. And it seems to be most pronounced, again, in the fast muscle fibers. Um, there's some data from training studies, and I'm thinking of a paper published by Ulrika uh, Rawe in, in 2009 from Ball State, where they did a, a resistance training study. I believe it was an eight-week resistance training study in older females. And if I'm not mistaken, there was really no improvement in, in, the, in the size. And I don't, think this, I don't think the strength or power either of fast muscle fibers in these older females. Whereas we do see maybe improvements in the males, but they're blunted. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the difference between somebody who has been training to a high level, say from their teens through their twenties, you know, maybe into their thirties or even forties. Obviously we know from watching athletics, we see that these people have a drop off people who have gotten close to their genetic ceiling and then they have a decline. Something that I'm always kind of trying to encourage the general population is that don't be looking at elite athletes decline, meaning that you also have to have the same decline. Because even though, because you're in a much lower level of physical fitness and you're so much further away from your genetic ceiling, it's perfectly possible for you to actually see improvements from 45 to 50 and 50 to 60. Whereas what a lot of people tend to default is, Oh, we see the pitchers or the sprinters or the soccer players, you know, they can't keep their speed up once they hit their early 30s or their mid 30s. And there's a disconnect between, yeah, because these people have 20 years of elite training behind them. They're having a very slight drop off, but they're still amazingly elite athletes. Whereas if you're 50 or 60 thinking about, oh, like I'm, I'm too old to start making gains here, I'm, I'm too out of shape. They're actually the people who can see vast improvements even though they're, they're, the clock is going the wrong way, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's kind of one of those, um, the higher you are, the harder you fall type things, right? The advantage, I guess, of being an elite athlete or participating in a high volume of, of sport when we're younger, be it 20, 30, 40, is that it does give us a bit of this, this physiological reserve, we can call it, right? We get our VO2 max really high, and then we know it's going to start to deteriorate as we get older, or at least we're above a, a threshold, right? We could lose 50% and still maybe be what a normal healthy person is. But you're exactly right in that if you go from training 20 hours a week to training none, there's a, there's a ton of potential for, for lost fitness that, that most people don't have. Um, whereas, you know, the average person isn't doing any exercise. Um, and so there is still substantial grounds for improvement there in, in the vast majority of people. And it doesn't take a lot. I think one of the things we see when we look at gains in fitness or even more, perhaps importantly, improvements in health and reductions in chronic disease risk is that the greatest changes are seen when we go from doing absolutely nothing to doing something so if we were to look at uh, a, a chart or a figure if you will and the reduction in risk of cardiovascular disease going from exercising none to one time a week two three four five six seven the greatest drop off in disease risk isn't occurring between going from doing six days to seven or four to five the 
vast majority of those benefits are going to be seen in the first three days with the greatest chunk being seen going from doing absolutely nothing to doing something. And I think that that's a very important message because, you know, I think sometimes as exercise professionals, we kind of do an injustice when we talk about, well, you need to do aerobic training and you need to do strength training and you need to do flexibility exercise. And people are like, well, I don't have the time for all that. So they just throw their hands up in the air and maybe don't do anything. But I think what's most important is you can do aerobic training or strength training or flexibility. And truth be told, do any of them. Do whatever you can because that's going to give you health benefits. And it's going from doing nothing to doing one of those even once a week um, that you're going to see performance benefits. There was a new paper that I just came across and it looked at changes in, in muscle strength just exercising just doing one set of resistance exercise in young adults once a week and strength improved like 20%. And I couldn't even tell you the duration of the program. Sorry, but, but, but I think that's pretty powerful. Like literally one set once a week and we're improved, improving muscle strength substantially significantly. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's yeah. I'm not surprised with those results. You see it all the time. Like if some people just start doing a little bit, it makes a big difference. I think a good way to sum up the, benefits for people who like might be considering or questioning like i'm x age you know this is when people are usually thinking about decline how can i improve well it's a case of because you haven't been doing anything your rate of improvement can outrun the rate of natural decline for a certain period and then it will get to a point where like okay now your rate of improvement is going to slow down You'll probably be able to maintain pretty well for a long time, and then there might be a gradual decline. But I think it's really important for people to realize. Or, or people exactly. who've been exercising all their life, it's just like exactly. Man, I hope I can you know run a five k within a minute of what I could run ten years ago. Yeah, exactly. So we've talked a lot about mechanisms and and things that happen. I guess what's important now, Greg, is that we give people practical ideas of what they can do to maintain physical function as best as possible. So you touched on how doing anything is better than nothing. The listeners of this podcast, like, first of all, they're interested in golf and they're interested enough in working out for golf to listen to this podcast. So you have people who are willing to exercise. What types of different exercise modalities would you say are very important to include over the course of a training week to maintain physical function as best as possible as we age. Yeah. So uh, I'm not even going to try to conceal my bias here, uh, which is ironic because the whole paper and the reason you brought me on was about muscle strength, but I'm an aerobic exerciser and we know that cardiovascular disease is unquestionably the leading cause of death, both in the United States and worldwide. And so, you know, I've been kind of thinking about this, like, You know, if you're playing golf, what's the number one way you can prevent cardiovascular disease? And it'd probably be by not taking the cart, right? Um, If you walk 18 holes, you're walking. You probably know better than me. Four miles, five miles. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. About about like four or five miles, and depending on the course, like 13 to 16,000 steps, roughly. I'm sure people have. You know, there's big ranges here. And so you're, and you know, carrying the clubs, you're totally satisfying your aerobic exercise quotient. You do that, 
three to five days a week and you're you know cardiovascular you're going to live a longer healthier life there's absolutely no question about tell that. us about your granddad quick while we're on this yeah topic. yeah i mean the guy's the guy's an animal it's like i should know but i think he's 92 um this was the first year actually he didn't go ski a black diamond in colorado and it like broke his heart to do yeah he works at habitat for humanity a couple times a week and he yeah he walks 18 holes of golf like three days a week he just does it he doesn't think about it and like even when i go out with him like no for walking yeah so cool exactly. so yeah um that makes it that you know you do that and you're covered and even if you hate the idea of aerobic exercise well you, you just walked you know five miles three times a week so you don't even have to think about it right you're doing what you're loving and you're getting your aerobic exercise in. so that makes it really easy um i think obviously some strength training is beneficial if you can get to a gym or you have access to weights um doing really whole body exercises if you can things that are engaging both the lower body and the upper body um squats are obviously a fantastic exercise if we have the um, functional capacity to do any type of squats and the great thing about those is we don't even necessarily need to get to a gym um we can do body weight squats at home and if that's too easy we can hold a milk jug in our hands yeah. and do squats or we can do them with a single leg if exactly. we want to make them more challenging and that's going to really strengthen uh the leg muscles going to strengthen the core it's going to strengthen the glutes and that should give us a lot of fast explosive power for when we're trying to you know really hit the golf ball so so that should be helpful as well um you know doing some upper body focused exercises uh that would be specifically for golf and um again i'm not i'm not the best golfer in the world so to be honest there are probably professionals out there who provide honestly you you just get people to do the same ones they do if they weren't playing golf you you get them to push push pull overhead and horizontally do some flies and reverse flies and you have them practice swinging a golf club as fast as they can and it's it's pretty well covered maybe some sorry yeah go go ahead no no i think that's great and i do think you know we're, we're talking a lot of this conversation we talked about muscle power and its importance in health but it's also its importance in golf so one thing i i do want to mention is that peak power of a muscle is generally generated at a pretty low percent of its maximal strength so for instance with the quadriceps we're generally going to achieve peak power at around maybe 40 percent of what our maximal strength is and so if we're exercising to improve power we want to exercise at at a very a weight that's doesn't necessarily need to be that high right we know if peak power is going to be achieved at 40 percent, we want to put a pretty light weight on if we're doing a lift and we want to focus on really being fast and explosive um and i, I think that's a common misconception if people go they want to improve power and so they start lifting really heavy and that's not going to be necessarily the best way to improve power you want to get a lighter weight you obviously want to make sure that your technique and form is good so you're not going to get hurt and you're going to want to do it with purpose you're going to do it fast and you're going to do it explosively that's why greg like i i completely agree you're speaking kind of this the same language that that i you know like to hear for people listening like especially who have 
followed any of the programs that I've put out on the internet on social media or in the app. That's why there's exercises where you're lifting weights that are reasonably challenging for somewhere between five and eight reps usually. But it's also why there's exercises like vertical jumping, broad jumping, explosive kettlebell swings, jumping side to side, throwing and slamming med balls, rotating and pulling on bands as quickly as you can. It's getting that power component that is somewhat developed by resistance training, but it's not developed to the same extent. And you've explained to us very clearly how that's the one that declines the most as we age. So it's kind of interesting how definitely from my experience, it's also the one that people train the least. Like totally. if, if I if I had to rank what the average middle-aged male or female that is doing some exercise that gets in touch with me or that I've uh, spent time with in the gym in person, most people who are any bit interested in activity, they do some sort of aerobic activity. Like they might walk or maybe jog or, or go on an exercise bike or something like that. You'd probably get people who do maybe a little bit of stretching before or after their aerobic activity. Then some people, but definitely less than the first do, do some resistance training or strength training like lifting weights. Almost nobody in the general population does anything for power where they're moving explosively. If they're lifting weights, they're doing them generally for very high reps with a very slow and controlled tempo which isn't bad. It's definitely better than not lifting weights, but it's not working on power like we're talking about. But it's so rare you get people doing either a squat with a kind of light or moderate weight, as you mentioned, with maximum intent or doing something like a counter movement jump. Or if they're worried about joint stress, jump onto a low box and step back down. So you're you're taking away the landing or swing a kettlebell or, you know, throw and slam med balls, those types of things. Or even to a certain extent for the upper body and trunk muscles, practice swinging your golf club as fast as you can, not the speed you swing it when you're hitting a golf ball, you know, on the course. Yeah, no, I, and I, you know, when we think of resistance training, the kind of gold standard is like three sets of eight to 10 repetitions, right? And so what do you do as just a lay person, you go into the gym and you find the weight that you can lift for about 12 repetitions and you throw it on there and you totally crush your ability to produce any explosive power. Because yep. you're lifting yeah. a weight with a weight that's so heavy, you can't can't move it with a great uh, a very high velocity. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're I think you're spot on, and I, yeah. I do think that that probably plays a, as we just talked about, right? Um, I think that probably plays a huge role in in the phenomenon we just we've been discussing yeah. throughout the podcast, which is the age related loss of power and why there's you know a term specific adaptations to impose demand or the said principle and our, our bodies and our muscles in particular are going to be really good at doing what we tell them to do. And if that's to lift, you know, 80 pounds with real slow controlled motion, we're going to get really good at lifting 80 pounds very yeah. slowly and controlled. Definitely. Maybe good even, for lifting a grandkid, but not swinging a golf yeah. ball. <laughs> and even going back to um, the equation you talked about for power and you mentioned Andy Galpin, who's also been a guest on the podcast. Like essentially the equation for power comes down to force multiplied by velocity. And yeah. one of the things that I try and preach to people all the time is work on pretty much the extreme ends of both sides of that spectrum. So work on developing as much force as you can 
which is best done with weights that are heavy relative to your strength level. So that's going to mean reasonably low reps. And then work on velocity. And for velocity, that's not about increasing how much you're moving. It's about increasing how fast you're moving. And for that to be possible, the resistance has to be low. And that might actually mean sometimes that the only resistance is your body weight. If it's a jump or a sprint or something like that, and to keep the resistance low for an upper body exercise, it could be something like a, a plyo push-up or a med ball throw or slam or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and people not being fearful of taking, you know, as much time as they need in between repetitions or in between sets to make sure that when they're trying to work on those ends of the spectrum, that they're they're doing so in a way that's actually building either strength or strength or power and not just kind of fatigue. Brilliant. I have one last question for you, Greg. Are there any nutrition or supplementation ideas we should be considering maybe that are, say, different to what we generally hear about, let's say, sports nutrition or, or training for strength and performance? Okay. So I'll preface it by the fact that I'm not a nutritionist by any means, and I'm sure the um, you know, most common nutrition things that people are probably thinking about when it comes to exercise and, and specifically skeletal muscle or, or protein and creatine. So I'm not even going to get into them, but both are undoubtedly going to be beneficial if used appropriately um, for both strength and for power. I will say, and, and this is going to be a bit novel and probably one that maybe you've anticipated if you've looked me up, but, but many haven't, is uh, probiotics. And uh, for my postdoc, I actually studied uh, aging gut muscle axis that contributes to sarcopenia. And so specifically, we talked ad nauseum in the podcast about how as we get older, we lose mass and strength and power. And the, one of the primary focuses of my postdoctoral work was looking at how the bacteria that live in our gastrointestinal tract, which, by the way, there's more of them than there are cells that make up us. So that's kind of a mind bender. There's about 40 trillion cells living in the GI tract, whereas we're made of about 30 trillion. Yeah, pretty wild. And we know that the composition of that community can change profoundly, especially as we get older, and that there are countless studies tying changes in the community composition to uh, health as well as disease. So there are studies looking at how those bacteria are affected by cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And my work specifically focused on the possibility, and we believe it's pretty likely, that changes in those bacteria may actually contribute to age-related changes in skeletal muscle. There are actually studies in pigs showing that the bacteria may impact muscle fiber type which is like totally wild to yeah. think about um especially when we think like those bacteria are actually technically living outside our body it, it's crazy uh, and so by no means is it the magic bullet but um i do think probiotic supplementation is kind of like a new and emerging area as well as prebiotics and postbiotics and so thinking about how can we keep those bacterial communities in our gi tract healthy in a way that may impact our performance uh, on the golf course. So in terms of the amount of prebiotics and probiotics we may need to maximize that, is it likely that that would need to come from supplementation? 
Like, for example, with creatine, yes, we can find it in foods, but you cannot eat as much creatine as you need to see the most benefits to exercise. Like, you need to supplement. Is that similar with pre and probiotics? I don't know. Okay. If I'm being honest with you, there are certainly dietary strategies to change our gut bacteria. We know that for sure. Um, one of the things that's probably most commonly discussed is doing something like eating a high fiber diet, we know is going to definitely beneficially enrich gut microbial communities, eating things like fermented foods and sauerkraut, a colleague of mine, Jacob Allen, the university of Illinois is doing some great work looking at that. And there's other people who have done that before. We know that those can beneficially and, and eating, you know, fruits and vegetables can beneficially enrich our gut microbial communities. Um, probiotics are another possible strategy to do that. Um, yogurt, uh, all sorts of different ways to, to possibly affect gut bacteria. Exercise actually seems to affect the gut microbiome. So it's all interconnected, right? Um, it may be just that doing the exercise that, that part of the, it may be that part of the beneficial effects of exercise that we were talking about on skeletal muscle are mediated by changes in gut bacterial communities. So that's a new rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One that we could certainly talk about forever. So Greg, that was excellent information. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure the people listening will too. Before you go, where can people find out about more about your work or follow you online? Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Um, you can follow on me on Instagram or Twitter. It's at Dr. Greg Rosicki. Maybe you could put that in the show notes because uh, most people can't <laughs> spell my last name. Pretty much no one can. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can follow our lab. I'm in the Exercise Physiology Lab in the Biodynamics and Human Performance Center at Georgia Southern. Excellent. Greg, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. And again, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. If anyone comes down to Savannah and wants to play some golf, let me know. You're definitely going to be taken up on that offer. You might be regretting that. <laughs> right on. There's worse things. <laughs>